Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm David Brent Johnson. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, writers, and other public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is sports writer Stan Sutton. Stan Sutton is a member of the Indiana Sports Writers and Sportscasters Hall of Fame. He worked for six Midwestern newspapers throughout his career, including 25 years with the Louisville Courier-Journal. His books include The Curse of the Indy 500, 1958's Tragic Legacy, Butler Basketball Legends, Tales from the Indiana Hoosiers Locker Room with John Laskowski, and Tales from the 1980-81 Indiana Hoosiers with Landon Turner. Stan, thanks so much for joining us on Profiles. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. So did you grow up in the Midwest, or are you a transplanted Midwesterner? I'm definitely a Midwesterner. Almost all my life in Indiana, I uh, was born in a little town called Mays, Indiana, north of Rushville, and went to high school at Shelbyville. That's where I first started newspaper. I, I decided I wanted to be a newspaper man or really a sports writer in the sixth grade, and I don't wow. think most people, maybe it was <laughs> too wise to go ahead that way, but that's what I stuck with. And what did your parents say when you told them you wanted to become a sports writer? I don't think they had any grandiose ambitions for me, so uh, <laughs> they didn't care, and they helped me along, and uh, they would save everything I ever wrote for a long, long time. And anyway, I, I went to Shelbyville News when I was out of high school, and there books there some during high school and a little bit when I was at Butler. Then I moved on to Columbus, Indiana, the Republic down there uh, in 1963, I guess it was. I'm an old man here, and uh, worked there five years. Wonderful town, but it was a lot of hard work there, and that newspaper gets at the grassroots. Went oh, yeah. to Finley, Ohio for two years where I was sports editor over there, and I, I really enjoyed that time in Ohio. I was a good sports editor near Cleveland and Toledo and a lot of baseball and so forth, and, and came back two years later to uh, Bloomington. I got married at that time. That's really why I moved and uh, was managing editor of the old Courier Tribune, which is the paper here in Bloomington. It's now defunct. And in 1973, I moved to the Courier-Journal. They had tried to interview me five years before that, and I had not gone. And uh, this time, very happy to get a job down there, and I certainly enjoyed my time down in Louisville. Now, what galvanized you as a kid to become a sports writer? Were there particular sports that you were following already when you were 16? This doesn't make any sense at all, but that's what happened. I, I was a tremendous sports fan and a tremendous baseball fan. I loved the Cubs. I listened to doubleheaders anytime they were on, and liked basketball, football, everything else, too. I thought a little bit about, do I want to be a broadcaster, you know, broadcast games? That would be terrific. I said, there's only so many big, good teams that there are not enough jobs there. Sports writers got one in every town, you know. My ambition was still to cover baseball. And I, I have some over my career, but uh, not nearly as much as I have college sports and racing and golf. Did you play any sports yourself growing up? Uh, some, but not particularly at a high level. I played basketball. We didn't have a football team there in Mays. As I grew up, I continued to play. Usually softball is about all you can find. I played basketball independently. It was the highest I ever got in the, in the sport. Uh, that's about it. I, I don't think you have to play a sport to be a writer, but a lot of them think you do. You know, there's a lot of coaches and so forth and players think, you know, if you haven't played, you don't know how to do this. And right. I don't think that's true at all, really. You said you listened to the Cubs a lot on the radio. Were there other teams or athletes that were favorites of yours growing up from the whole spectrum of sports? Uh, ironically, I followed Purdue football in those days. I, I, I knew it was probably going to go to IU, and I got a little bit soft on them. And once I went out to college, I was fine. Uh, Purdue was in the background, you know. But uh, mostly it was the Cubs, and I followed the NBA in those days. We had the Indianapolis Olympians up there. 
for a few years. And pro football, I followed the Chicago Cardinals. I really didn't like the Bears. And I think it was because Red Grange was kind of a bad announcer and he was so partisan to them. I followed the Cleveland Browns. As the Packers became good, right before they became good, I became a big, big Packer fan. That has remained all these years, really. That's kind of an interesting issue. You talk about Red Grange, the announcer being too partisan. Was that something you ever wrestled with in your own careers? Or how do sports writers do that when you're covering your uh, your hometown team? How do you stay objective about it without becoming kind you, of a booster? I you guess? have to realize that this is the team that people want to read about. So your quotes are going to be with local players more than it will be the other players. But I never had a problem that way. In my mind, I'm wanting them to win. But once I got to the Courier-Journal, which is very highly ethical, I had no problem. I had a lot of problem with people who didn't, who weren't objective, you know. Well, yeah, there's a lot of pressure sometimes from, seems like to me anyway, following sports myself over the years, there's a lot of pressure from the particular teams or organizations that you should be a booster if you're a hometown journalist covering that particular team. If you're a real sports writer, I don't think you become biased toward one team. In your heart, you want them to win. Sometimes it was a selfish idea in my mind. Sometimes when I was covering Indiana, I don't want Bob Knight to blow up after the game, so I hope they win. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, sometimes it was because if the football team wins, they're going to go to the Cotton Bowl or something like that. Well, in your mind, you want them to win, but you don't write that way. You're very, very impartial. You grew up in Indiana, and you've got this book, The Curse of the Indy 500, 1958's Tragic Legacy. Did you become a racing fan when you were a kid? Yes, very much so. Uh, of course, they didn't have the race during the war years. They came back in 1946, and they were on the radio. Right. That's because of the gasoline ration. Right. Yeah, it was because of the war. And uh, very rudimentary broadcast in those days. They would pretty much just say, you hear a Zoom go by. But that was Ted Horn. You hear another Zoom go by. That was Rex Mays. And, and I was just fascinated by that. I just absolutely loved it. And I remember in 1949, in Mays, about 150 people or so, there wasn't any television set anyplace except at the local garage. And they put the TV out as a 12-incher, black and white, and put a few chairs around the TV. And a lot of people from Mays went down there to watch the 1949 Indy 500, which has always got to be my favorite because I love Bill Holland. He was the winner that year. He had finished second in 1947 and 48 and would finish second again in 1950. And I just got totally bitten by the 500 bug. And I didn't get up to the track until... I think about 53 when I went up to practice day, and we went to our first race in 56. and sat in an old wooden grandstand at the south end of the track. I was pretty well bitten by that time. I knew all the drivers, and I didn't think about riding racing, but I wanted to. And once I got to Columbus, we did some riding on the speedway. And when I got to Louisville, they, at one point they named me to handle the beat which meant I was spending a good portion of May up at the track. I was just in heaven. I was going to say, it must have been like a dream come true. Oh, it really was, and... We'd go up there all for practice days and qualifying days, and, and uh, you got to know the drivers. And you, sometimes at first you were kind of scared to go in the garage areas. You know, there's AJ, I know he'd probably chase you out. AJ uh, Foyt, yeah. He was always a little imposing to me, you know. But uh, got to know a lot of drivers real well. Danny Sullivan was from Louisville. He won the race one year. That was a pretty special deal for us. And I knew Mario pretty well. He'd have a press conference once a year at least, and he'd bring about 15 riders into this. Mario and Sweet. Yeah, Mario and He was my dad's favorite driver. He was a yeah. wonderful driver and a very, very interesting man, I thought. The whole family is. What led you to focus on this particular year and race in this book, The Curse of the Indy 500, 1958's well, Tragic Legacy? I went to that race, and uh, Pat O'Connor 
was killed in that race. He's from North Vernon, very popular young driver. Indiana, right? North Vernon. Yeah, Indiana. North Vernon, Indiana. My dad came up the night before and said, "How'd you like to go to the 500 tomorrow?" Yeah, you betcha. You know, and uh, we took our old 54 Plymouth up there and parked it on Georgetown Road. No ticket or anything, you know. They opened the gates at five o'clock, and we all took off. Everybody racing for a spot to see, and we got a place on the back stretch where you could probably see 100 yards. I don't know, not very much. And I distinctly remember the start was kind of messed up. Really, the, the, the front row got behind everybody, and I remember seeing them come around. I remember seeing Pat O'Connor looking down at his gauges. I remember seeing Ed Elysian pass Dick Rathman right, right in front of me, really. Or he was getting around him anyway. And then I heard a voice up on one of the scaffolding they used to put up there for fans. And there were cars all over the third turn, and there were. That's the one thing about the 500. Uh, you really had no idea what had happened. You couldn't see the entire track like you can in Daytona or some of those. And uh, it took a long time before they really said what had happened. And finally, they announced that Pat O'Connor had been killed. That bothered me because he had been at my school a year before. I was a freshman in college at that time and given a speech. And so I, I liked him anyway. And that was kind of a connection. I later would have other connections with drivers who were killed, but that really got to me. And the next day, uh, I was leaving Butler going home for the weekend or whenever. And I got behind that ambulance with a North Vernon license plate on it, going about 50 miles an hour. I knew who it was. So we drove kind of slowly. I did. I did few stuff past that ambulance. I just it was kind of kind of a parade, you know. That I was going to ride behind it all the way home, and I did. There were there were fatalities in those days that really bothered me because I didn't know the sport could be that dangerous. And there were anyway, a lot was, in those days, right? It was a very dangerous sport, in that day. and that's kind of what this book is about. Because the '58 race had obviously 33 drivers in it, and 13 of those drivers were killed in racing accidents. In the years following, in the, the years following, or yeah. Wow, so that's more than a third of the 1958 field yeah. died yeah. in racing accidents. That's just incredible. I know people still occasionally die today, even it was, well, it's been a while now, but Dale Earnhardt, and yeah. you know, there are still occasional fatalities, but nothing like what it seemed to be from my reading your book in the 1950s and into the 60s. Well, all the way back, even in the early days of racing, it was especially dangerous, almost impossible to live through it. Your head's sick out of the cockpit. You know, if your car rolled, you're in trouble. As a result of the 58 race, they had a roll bar, which just fits over the head of the driver, and that was a pretty good device. But they didn't wear any safety suits, no asbestos covering or anything. Some of the drivers were killed in races, accidents that really didn't look that severe. Dale Earnhardt was one of those, really. Over the years, they've gotten so that there were so many more safety advances made. I'm just astonished at what an Indy car could go through and not have the driver injured in uh, Scott Dixon, a year ago, up at Indy, had a terrible wreck. Went up, the car broke in two, and he came down on top of a wall, and that would have been a fatality. You know, go back 15 years, no doubt about it. He got out of there, and he wasn't even excited, you know. Uh, I was just astonished at how cool he was. How fast were the cars going in the 1958 race? What was the qualifying speed to make the pull that year? I'm not sure I remember exactly in 58. It became, they passed 150 in 1962, so it was something under that. I don't remember exactly. Straightaway speed was probably around 180 or so. And then, of course, you had to slow down in the turns to get through them. In recent years, you really don't have to take your foot off the pedal much at all. You just flat out go through them. Right. So you're still, even in the late 50s, early 60s, you're driving these cars at 130, 140 miles an hour, and you've got 
Very little, yeah. in my understanding, the way of protection. Your helmet's probably not even as good as a modern-day bicycle helmet. Drivers probably wore a T-shirt and old, dirty pants. And you could see their sleeves blowing in the wind when they came around and past you. There was very little protection at all. And, and uh, fortunately, we've come a long, long way. And that's one reason I've been able to still like racing, because it has improved where it's a lot more safe. In your book, one of your interviewees talks about how racing is addictive, how it gets in your blood. Yeah. Was it like that for you as a sports rider? It obviously was. I'd love to go around the track. I didn't. If it had a rainy day and I stayed there all day, if I went in there at 6 o'clock in the morning and stayed till 8 at night, it was okay. That's where I wanted to be. And you had people there that you enjoyed being around because they were racing people too. Did you ever get to go around the track itself in a racing car? Uh, yes. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, actually, there are three examples, four examples early. First one was back in uh, when I first started in the early 80s, covering for the Courier-Journal. They brought in a race car that was a smaller version, really. I think it was called a Formula 400 or something like that. Valvoline was sponsoring this thing, and certain sports riders got to go in them. They'd give us a helmet, and I don't even think we had a seatbelt, but we were about 80 mile an hour. And I was surprised at how much bumping there was on a very smooth track on those cars. <laughs> it was exciting, but then it got better. They have a, a two-seater, just exactly like an Indy car, except it's a little bit longer with a second seat built in by the driver. And I saw that thing, and boy, I would just give anything to be in that thing. And a lot of riders were scared they didn't want to take that thing. It'd be dangerous. And I didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> so one day, one of the people from the Speedway who knew me well came and said, he says, you've ridden in that two-seater, haven't you, Stan? I said, no. And I kind of hinted. He said, would you like to? And I said, oh, hell yes. <laughs> he said, come in tomorrow morning at so-and-so time. And they, I came in, and they had a helmet, a regular racing suit, racing shoes, the works. And they strapped me in, and we took off. And I was surprised by a couple of things. Once they have these aerodynamic helmets, they're far advanced. But the, the vibration was just tremendous. Uh, I couldn't believe how fast you shaking and and then you go into the third, and my seat was not padded in like the drivers would be locked in almost. And you just slide over and just almost feel like you're going out the side of the car. We took, uh, I think, a couple laps in that. I, I would have loved to have done about 15 or 20 of them. But oh, yeah, that I, must have been it, such it, a thrill. It made me appreciate what it was really like to be in the race with 32 other cars around you. I mean, almost wheel to wheel. I can't imagine it. I mean, I've seen, the, I've attended the race a couple of times. I can't yeah. imagine at that speed the cars being that close and just the, the margin for error seems so small to me that, you know, yeah. anything could go wrong like like what happened in 1958 that yeah. you describe in your three book. Three or four, first three or four times that I covered that race, I was actually scared, I mean, really scared, and particularly at the start of the race because it was more dangerous back then than it is now. And I remember the 82 race, I was sitting up in the press box overlooking the finish line. And that's when Kevin Kogan somehow veered out of place and took all the cars out before the start. I had another drive that I should elaborate on. Uh, they used to have a press day up there, usually in April, and the reporters could come in and they'd have interviews with certain drivers and say things like that. And then they, one of the highlights was you get to ride around the track in a pace car. Usually it was some engineer driving it, but often it was a race driver. So this time I went out to take my pace car ride and you had to sign your life away, obviously. You, you, I signed on how many documents, so that was fine, too. And I called in the right door and locked myself in, and looked over, and Emerson Fittipaldi was my driver. Wow. I knew him a little bit. He won the race twice. He won the yeah. World Championship twice. And I said, boy, this is really a thrill. I don't care how fast you go. He took off. In the second turn, we were 140 mile an hour <laughs> in a brand-new spanking Corvette. Burgundy-colored, gorgeous thing. Leather seats. 
He went down the back stretch, he was doing 170. I didn't know a Corvette could go that fast. I really didn't. But that was a thrill. I, I wasn't scared. I was just loving it. We went around a couple turns, went down the main stretch at 170 mile an hour, through the first turn, through the second turn, 140 or whatever, up to 170, down the back stretch again. Suddenly I hear that Brazilian voice over there say, oh my goodness. I looked in the mirror and there's blue smoke every place. His pressure gauge had gone down and he, he, he slowed down to 50 mile an hour and he coasted into the pits, you know. Chevrolet engineers came running out there in droves. <laughs> I thought it was like a garage floor when they turned the light out at night and the rats come out or something. And uh, anyway, uh, they got me out of sight real quickly. And, and uh, so the engine he blew. He or? blew the engine off. It had to be a probably a Corvette with 100 miles on it. And uh, I don't know what kind of repercussions that led to for him, but it was a lot of fun for me. <laughs> If you're just joining us, our guest on Profiles is sports writer Stan Sutton. He's a member of the Indiana Sports Writers and Sportscasters Hall of Fame and author of a number of books about sports. Now, you've also written several books about Indiana basketball, which has an almost religious or mythological power for a lot of people in uh, the state of Indiana. And you have a book about Butler basketball, Butler basketball legends. You attended Butler. Is that I attended correct? Butler, yes, for a couple of years. When were you at Butler? Uh, the late 50s. They had a deal back in those days where you could buy a season ticket for $5. They'd probably play four Big Ten teams, Notre Dame, a wonderful schedule. John Wooden was in there. The lots UCLA and lots of people coach. would buy a season ticket because, you know, it's such a bargain. And I, I went to quite a few games of those days just as a fan. In the last 20 years or so, when they got really good, I mean, I was right there with them. I was very, very excited about it when they went to the Final Four twice. Tony Hinkle would have been the coach, right, when you yeah, were Tony Hinkle at was the Butler. coach you know, for all 41 years or something like that. Interesting man. He was uh, very dedicated to his job in Butler and great coach, great coach. So how good or not good was the team when you were there in the late 50s? In the late 50s, this is when they had Bobby Plump and Ted Guzik, and, and they were a good team. They beat Indiana two years in a row, I remember. Bobby uh, Plump, who took the famous, famous shot. shot at Milan, yeah. Right, right. That I didn't realize, so I read your book, I didn't realize he had gone on to go to Butler. Yeah, he, he had become a great player up there, really. And they went to the NIT one year, uh, maybe two years with that group. And then in 62, they went to the NCAA for the first time. That was a really good team, too. Had Jeff Blue, a big kid over from Bainbridge, and just a really solid team for size school it was. I've heard this phrase used a lot over the years, and especially in the more recent era of Butler basketball. What exactly is the Butler way? That is something that apparently was devised by Barry Collier, who was the former coach and now is their athletic director, and he's done a terrific job up there. And it's just simple stuff that good citizenship, priority, keeping your life clean. There's a lot of things that other schools do, too. But they put a tag on it. It really stuck because it became good at that time. I don't know that I can put a finger on exactly what it is, but it's all, all things that are good. Is about it sounds way. like a philosophy that transcends mm -hmm. just the game of basketball. It's like almost it like a way of life. A way yeah, of that's living. really true, yeah. So you said Barry Collier coined the phrase. Does the concept, you think, did it start with Tony Hinkle, or did he employ that he at all? He didn't employ that at all, and uh, I, I think probably it started with Barry Collier. That's what I hear. I don't know whether it started when he became athletic director or when he was originally coach. The team was turned around, basically. Uh, he, he was coaching the 1999 team that lost to Florida on a last-second shot. 
Florida went on to the national championship game. That was one of the big reasons that the program got reversed again and got better. Another time that I think is very important, in fact, I made this kind of a priority in the book, 1993, IU had a great team with Calvert Cheney and those guys, and they opened their season at Butler. And Butler was skimming along 50% or something like that all the time. And, and I, I was at that game. It was amazing. 60%, 70% of the crowd was wearing red on Butler's home floor. And Butler beat him that day. And uh, I think that kind of got things going. Yeah, so that was at Hinkle Fieldhouse. That was at Hinkle Fieldhouse, yeah. Which is a place that has such a mystique. In, in yeah, it has a marvelous mystique. And it used to seat 15,000, but it was bench seats. They have renovated that place and done an amazing job with it. It's really a beautiful place now. It's kind of like Wrigley Field. They've renovated it, but they have not replaced it. And uh, I, I love to go to games there, and I know most people do. When was the first time you went to a game there? Was it before you became a student at Butler? No, or? I'd never gone there until my freshman year. You had free tickets there, and you could pick anybody who came in. I was talking about the season tickets. You just pick a seat you like. That was part of the deal. You find a seat you like, and you get as close to the floor as you want to. And that's where they used to have the state championship yes. for high school, right? Yes. It would be at Hinkle Fieldhouse. Yes. That's where the Bobby Plump that's shot exactly was exactly right. It was kind of short in the floor. They'd move the goalpost out a little bit. So it would be a high school area floor. That was probably the toughest ticket you could get in Indiana in those days. It was just a lot of the schools got their certain share. And if you wanted just to buy a ticket to state finals, it was really, really tough to get in. Basketball was really big in high schools in those days. Yeah, I was a high school student in the 1980s, and I remember attending games at Hinkle Fieldhouse mm-hmm. uh, when my high school was in, the, I think, either the regional or the semi-state. Mm-hmm. And just the atmosphere of it was crazy. It was, you know, it was 9,000 or however many it seated at the time, pretty much sold out for a high school game. And yeah. it seemed to have a power and allure back then that maybe, in my sense of it, is it's not so much there these days. But it's I, definitely not there now. But, uh, but Butler itself that? has kind of transcribed that feeling from the high schools to itself. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, almost every game now is a sellout. Maybe a couple of the exhibition games aren't, but... Uh, that's not a big, big crowd, 11,000 or whatever, but uh, they have a great following in Indianapolis right now. And I, I love watching their teams. They're very well coached. They're not unlike the night teams, really. The way they're doing it, it's the way it should be done. Yeah. How have they sustained their success in recent years following the departure of Brad Stevens to the Boston Celtics? I mean, Stevens was such a beloved coach there. He's the guy who got them into the NCAA championship game two years in a row, right. and nobody would have thought they'd get that far. And then he leaves a year or two later to go coach the Celtics, and yet they still it's, seem to be doing relatively well. What he did is, is just fascinating. And I, watching the way he worked with the team and so forth, I know Brad a little bit, not very much. He's a tremendously hard worker, very uh, painstaking guy. Even the Celtics, I understand, really believe in him. And uh, when they, they were very successful and a little bit lucky when he left. That was a bad day for me and all Butler fans, I think, because we didn't think he'd be able to replace him. And they, they didn't for one year. They brought in Brandon Miller, who apparently had some health problems after a year. And then they brought in Chris Holdman, who uh, I think was just a chip off of Brad Stevens. I, I watched him very closely while I was writing his book, and I thought he was a tremendous coach. He's now at Ohio State and did a great job there this year. And they've been able to get pretty good homegrown talent Ever since before Brad, really. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. When I was living in the butler Tarkington neighborhood for a few years mm-hmm. in recent years, and, and on days when there was a home basketball game, 
the neighborhood would just be full of cars. You couldn't find you. Good luck getting in your own driveway. Yeah. There's so many cars parked over there. But but one day I got a text from my brother and he said, so are the flags flying at half mass today at Butler? And I didn't know what he was <laughs> talking was. about, but that was the day that Brad Stevens, they announced oh, Brad Stevens yeah. was going to the Celtics. Jim McGrath is a sports information director at Butler in those days. And he and his wife were in Paris and he got a call from home. He said, he says, the worst news I've ever got in my life, you know, and, and his wife noticing it says, did somebody die? And he says, it's worse than that. <laughs> he said, let's go home. And she said, no way. <laughs> I know a lot of IU fans were hoping that they would be able to. They, for a long time, we could hear his name mentioned a lot. Yeah. I think they've got a good coach now, but uh, I don't think Brad Stevens is going to leave the Celtics anytime soon because they love him up there. You made a comment a little while ago about saying that you feel like in some ways the older IU program is more manifested now in the Butler program. Has Butler's success to some extent come at the expense of IU's basketball program over the last 15, 20 years? I actually had a chapter on that. I don't know what a very long chapter, but I've wondered how much IU has been affected by how much IU's got good players. They should have had Spencer Haywood, maybe. An awfully good player who I don't think IU made any attempt at all to get. There's some other Butler players that you would think they might get in their own I don't get the impression of competing too much for the same players right now. I don't, maybe I'm off base a little bit there, but but Butler has gotten some players from out of state that have done very well. They've gotten some transfers that uh, maybe didn't have much, maybe only one year left to play. Now, two years ago, they had a couple of transfers in that were really good. And a number of years ago, when they beat IU and they were number one back in 2012, I guess it was, they had a kid from Oklahoma transfer from Arkansas named Rodney Clark. Tremendous player, really exciting, great right range. He scored like 4,000-some points in high school in Oklahoma. They had him for one year, but he was really amazing, and he, I think that helped bring some more players to it. He came here because they'd gone to the Final Four. Brad Stevens was there. He wanted to play for a team that would go in the tournament and was impressed by Butler. Yeah, it's just interesting as somebody who grew up in the state and followed basketball for many, many years now, it feels to me at times – not just in terms of competing for players, but that some of the the mystical zeal and fan base passion has transplanted somewhat to Butler now that maybe used to be there in my him. book signings. I've talked to a few people, and not a large amount, but I talked to one man, and he said, "I'm an IU fan, but I'm also a Butler fan now." And I found several of those who not only just limit themselves to IU. I found two or three at least that were IU fans who just changed their allegiance. I don't think that's very prominent because IU fans are everywhere now. And Butler is such a small school, right? I mean, even still today, relatively speaking, yeah, it's so small. It, compared it's to not. Uh, I don't think the size of the school matters too much, but you got to have the program, and you have to have alumni that help to support it. And when they went into the Big East Conference, they'd been a mid-major for a long time. They went to the Atlantic Ten for one year, and then they went on to the Big East when they lost some members and, and were adding to it. I think that was a great thing for them. It's a very competitive conference. I, in my opinion, it's competitive with the Big Ten, at least most years. Villanova's won two of the last three national tournaments, and Butler beat Villanova three straight times in the last two years. The games are exciting. I've enjoyed going and watching them play, and I think the talent there is is mainly no football schools. It's just their basketball power. That's where they concentrate. But you're costing a lot more money to play in the Big East when you're going to the Atlantic Coast all the time to travel, and not just basketball but other sports. Now, you covered IU basketball for yeah, many years. Many right? years, yeah. Was that when you were writing for the Louisville Courier-Journal? Yeah, I later became sports editor of the Herald Times here in Bloomington, and I also covered them there. But from 84, pretty much until I retired in 2006, I was covering IU at one form or another. 
So you covered IU for almost 20 years of the Bobby Knight era. Uh, we, we had an interesting experience, really. <laughs> Bob Knight, is he went about three years before he even acknowledged me, you know. But then he decided he could trust me. He suddenly became friendly and invited me to practice, you know. And if I needed an interview once in a while, I didn't happen very often. He'd come over to practice and come down to the coach's locker room down there and we'd talk afterwards. He was fantastic sometimes. But he could love you, and the next day he'd just hate you. And, yeah, I was going to say, he wasn't exactly known for his warm-hearted love no. of sports writers. He, he could come down a hallway and see you and flap you on the back, almost knock you down. That was a good sign. <laughs> but the next day he might growl right past you, and there you have no idea what's happened. You didn't write anything in the meantime, didn't say anything against him in the meantime. He's just a moody man, you know. And when he left, I assume this is what turned him off to me, but... I wrote something that for a West Point man, he never really seemed to understand the chain of commands because he was not getting along with Doniger, the athletic director then. And from that point on, we never had any kind of fruitful conversation. Well, right, yeah. He has pretty much turned his back completely. Yeah, it seems on a like. lot of people in Bloomington, yeah. a lot of really good friends. That, and uh, suddenly he just became a distant guy. Well, that must have still been quite a challenge even before all that, just to cover him from 1984 up until the time of his departure. I mean, that's so you were around during the infamous chair-throwing incident against— Yeah, uh, right behind him. <laughs> you were right behind him when he threw the chair. Got a good view of that. Did you see that coming? I guess you were. It was getting a little tense in there, but I didn't expect that. Bob and I, you didn't know what to expect. But when he got fired up like that or he got into the big riff with Ted Valentine at the Illinois game a few years later— the crowd just rose to the occasion. Bobby couldn't do anything wrong, so if he knocked out an official with a punch, that'd be fine, you know. <laughs> yeah, I was watching that game with some friends of mine in the dorm room basement, and everybody uh, in the dorm room basement cheered when he threw the chair. Yeah. The game was going very badly yeah. for IU at that point, so that was like the yeah. the zenith of entertainment for people in that game. was in After that chair. game, Gene Cady's in the press room, and he said, I want you guys to understand that there's only one thing that's important in this game, and that's that we won. And he thought that was a news angle, and it certainly wasn't. But working for a Louisville paper made that a very interesting job because they have three major beats down there in the winter. One is Kentucky basketball, Louisville basketball, and Indiana basketball. And the editors down there didn't seem to care at all about Bob Knight or Indiana unless he did something stupid. <laughs> and then they just were all over the wall. You know, my phone was ringing off the hook, and they never quite understood why I couldn't call Bob Knight at home or some of those things he just wouldn't allow. And if he did something, it was borderline, like, you remember the bullwhip he had down in Albuquerque at the tournament? Oh, yeah. He, he faked it. He was using to whip his players. And that got people all riled up because it was a racist thing, supposedly. And, Calvert uh, Cheney, right? Calvert Cheney, yeah, right. Amazing. And uh, our editors were going nuts over that. I knew Bob Knight wasn't a racist. He did a lot of things, but he wasn't a racist. In addition to Knight, you also worked with a couple of IU basketball players on books about yeah. IU basketball. John Laskowski, who I still remember as super sub when I was yeah. a little kid. And then Landon Turner, who was part of the 1981 championship yeah. team and who very sadly was injured in that car wreck yeah. uh, the summer after that. What was it like working with those guys on books about IU well, basketball? Well, it was last. It was kind of a arranged deal. I wrote the book. I think he wrote one chapter. His name was on it. But at book signings, it was fabulous because he sold a ton of them. Just being there, they could get his autograph. They liked that. They didn't care about my autograph, of course. He was very helpful, very nice to work with. John's a good friend. Landon, I don't see as much now, but we got along okay for the time we were doing it. Once again, I wrote the thing, but he gave me a lot of things that he wanted to put in there. It was more like the normal arrangement that way, I think, than I had with Les. 
he had some things that he wanted to put in and he didn't want to put in. If he had told everything that probably he knew, like the marijuana case in Alaska with the IU players, he, he, we wrote the chapter and then he's, I don't want to ruin that. And so we had to cut it out. And, but he's a good guy and he's done well considering his problems. And the first book I wrote on my own was a book called "100 Things I Use Fans Should Do or Know Before They Die" or some whatever convoluted title was. And that was kind of fun. It was the chapters of various stages of IU history, and uh, I enjoyed that. I wrote another book. This is for a sports publishing company in Champaign, Illinois, called "The Time of Our Life," and I turned it in by deadline, and they went out of business. <laughs> oh, so that book was basically wasted. And finally, 10 years later, I ran it chapter by chapter in a publication called Inside Indiana, which is for the IU fans, and that worked out pretty well. So these two, uh, IU Press called me and kind of wanted to know if I had anything I wanted to do. And I said, well, I've been wanting to do this racing book for many, many years, but never got around to it. I don't know whether I could do it now or not. So they okayed that, and they okayed the Butter book, and uh, I enjoyed them both. Well, it's got to be hard to write a book when you're a full-time professional sports writer, I would think. Very, probably impossible. I, I, I see people do it, but they're probably columnists who have more reign over their own time than a regular reporter would have. I'm David Brent Johnson. Our guest on Profiles is sports writer Stan Sutton, the author of The Curse of the Indy 500, 1958's Tragic Legacy, Butler Basketball Legends, and several other books, including two about the Indiana Hoosiers basketball program. You were talking about the book you did with Landon Turner. and Landon Turner, I saw him play in high school when he was, Uh I think, at Tech. And uh, that team he was on in 1981 was a really incredible team in that they actually didn't have that good a record about oh. two-thirds of the way through the season. They just really seemed to find a groove there in the last month or two of the season and kind of turned into one of those night teams that just seemed unbeatable. And then, of course, Isaiah, in addition to Turner having his car accident, Isaiah Thomas jumped to the pros, yeah. which back then was really unusual that a, a player after his sophomore year, you had to be like a Magic Johnson or Isaiah Thomas and to do he that. Was, yeah. It's mind-blowing to me to think that Michael Jordan played three years of college mm-hmm. basketball before he jumped to the NBA, whereas today you have so many right. one-and-done players. Uh, the Kentucky program is built these days exactly. completely on one-and-done. How else is college basketball different today than it was during the 70s and 80s and 90s glory era for the IU program? Well, uh, Bob Knight didn't hear anymore. That's the biggest difference. <laughs> I'm not sure... Things have changed. I don't know whether basketball has changed that much or not. It's still the three-point shot came in there, and that really made a entirely different deal. Coaching probably is a little bit different. I thought Knight instigated defense, made it prominent on his teams. He was kind of one of the first coaches to to outwork everybody, shall we say. You look around the Big Ten now, that doesn't happen anymore. You can't outwork all these teams. I think they played much harder now than they did probably those days. You don't know whether you're playing hard or not. Somebody else tells you whether you are or not. And I see great hustle, great stress and everything in the game today where you have to have more bench time. That might be the first thing I would notice. Do you think that IU can ever again become the kind of force in college basketball that it was throughout much of the night era? I think they have times when they do. They're not going to dominate the Big Ten. When Knight was here, 
he got just about any player he wanted from Indiana, Ohio, and Illinois. He's not going to do that anymore. And you got to go out farther to get players. You're going to Europe or whatever. I think Indiana is as good as they could be right now. I like Archie Miller and certainly Romeo Langford coming in here is going to be a tremendous thing for them, for one year at least. But the thing is, everybody else is so much better now. When IU was really good, we didn't have to worry about Villanova. They weren't going to be that good, you know. Just about everybody now makes a run at being a really good team because you don't need that many players to do it. I see IU having brief streaks of uh, high success, but they're going to be in the middle of the pack a lot more than they once were. Well, despite the changes that have happened in college basketball and happened at IU and at the Indiana high school level and everything else, it still seems like there's still a, a real mystique around basketball in the Midwest and in Indiana in particular. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there is just this, like, you know, you look at films like Hoosiers yeah. and what happened when Butler made its run to the national championship and everything. It feels like that kind of passion is still alive. Why do you think this particular part of the country seems to... I think to... a big part of it is the NCAA tournament has become so big. I mean, when Indiana won it in 1940, I don't think it amounted to much of anything. In 53, there were some good teams, but not everybody like it is today. And in 53, it was still the state high school tournament was a big deal here. And Indiana was big, but not as big. And now there's so much television throughout the season and, and uh, especially in the tournament it really draws everybody's attention, even people who don't really like basketball. That's a big difference, and that feeds the uh, popularity of the, of the sport, I think. Yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting how certain sports events, kind of their status can change over the decades at the NCAA Final Four, such a big deal. Now, you talk in your book about the Indy 500, that the status of that race in 1958 was maybe in a way more special than it is now, yeah. that in the late 50s, the Indy 500 was really one of the premier sports events in the world, and there was no Super Bowl for one exactly, in 1958. Yeah. NASCAR came along, and they were they had some advantages. They had the big cars where you can put big ads, you know, and sponsors like them, and TV, and looking for things, sports to cover, got into NASCAR really big. And meanwhile, the IndyCar system is split up, which is a terrible thing to happen, in my opinion. Now they're back together. I think IndyCar racing is terrific anymore, and I think the fans are beginning to feed back on it. NASCAR seems to be slipping some. I don't know how much it's going to slip, but uh, I think Indy racing is, is is really special right now. Do you think, in terms of sports events being special, do you think there's any chance that Indiana would ever go back to a single-class high school basketball tournament? No, I don't know. Uh, it's a shame the administrators wanted it. They, the trophy for everybody was kind of their theme, and if even if it went back, I don't think it's it's too late. You know. If you're uh, just joining us, our guest on Profiles is sports writer Stan Sutton. He is a member of the Indiana Sports Writers and Sportscasters Hall of Fame. He's the author of a number of books about sports, including The Curse of the Indy 500, 1958's Tragic Legacy, and Butler Basketball Legends. I know, Stan, you said that you played sports a little bit when you were a kid. Do you have any moments that you would regard as a memorable sports-related accomplishment of your own? Well, I wasn't much of a player, but I do remember I was in the, starting out in the seventh grade, this little school, we had our first basketball team. We're playing at Morristown, and we're behind a point or two, probably a couple minutes left in the game, and I'm in the game. I'm at least 35 to 40 feet out. And I throw up an old two-handed set shot, and it goes in. That was an adrenaline-powered shot. I sure you, 
because I could never get it close to the rim from my normal right normal yeah. self. And that was the hit of the school for three or four days. All the girls were talking about it. That was probably my biggest moment in glory, as small as it was, but it was fun. Oh, yeah. When you're in seventh grade hitting a long <laughs> basketball shot, that's a big one. Well, do you golf at all or play any other sports? I, I have tried. I've played golf for years. I love golf. I've covered it for the Courier Journal. I was a golf writer for many years, covered the majors, tournaments, the U.S. Open, the Bastards. The PGA, of course, is in Louisville now and then. And that's probably my favorite sport when it comes down to the fact that you can still play it. But I'm 79 years old, and this summer is beginning to show its effects. I've had a lot of trouble getting the ball down range, but I love the sport. It's kind of, as basketball or other sports can do, too, it just gets you by the shoulders and pulls you along, you know. Did you ever get to play on any of the really famous oh, yeah. courses? That's, that's a story in itself. Covering Augusta, the media, and it's a large media core. And that's where the Masters is. That's right? where the Masters mm-hmm. is, and it's a very, very private course, I assure you. But they have a deal every year where they pick 20 media members, you sign up and you draw out of the lot, can play the course on Monday. Same tees, same pool. I mean, it's just exactly the way it was on Sunday. Obviously, we all signed up. And uh, I didn't get drawn the first year I was down there. But a buddy of mine did. I said, I'm going to go out there with you and see maybe I can caddy for you. That would be fantastic in itself. So I went out there, and it was kind of disorganized. There was the pose over the charger kind of going here and going there and so forth, you know, and, and they sent my friend out to the 10th tee. And uh, there were a couple other players out there. One of them was Matt Robinson, who was a quarterback for the Broncos and Jets, I think. And uh, he said, you got your clubs? I said, no, they're in my car. He said, I think you could get your clubs and play with us. Okay. <laughs> I'm not one to risk breaking the law or something, but we're talking about Augusta National here, you know. I run back to the car, get my clubs, come the long way back, you know, and get it to the 10th tee, ready to tee off, and I see one of the pros from the pro shop coming in our direction. Oh, boy, I've had it. And so somebody, somebody calls him back. I get my tee on the ground, and I hit that thing as quick as I can. And uh, I think I shot a 104 or something like that, but I did have a birdie on number four, which is, was a real tough par three that I never really couldn't even get there in a normal round. It was really special, and... Uh, then five years later, officially you could only be drawn once in your life. But my, I'd never been drawn yet. So I was in the pool again, and they drew me. And I played again. I shot a 90-something and wow. played pretty well. So you've gotten, to play, place. you've gotten to play the same golf course that Augusta the Masters is yeah. on. You've gotten to ride around the Indy 500 in a race exactly. car and in a pace car with Emerson yeah. uh, Fittipaldi. Those must have been pretty, pretty— Those are really special moments, you know, because you don't get those if you're just a layman. I had another deal later on where Danica Patrick was so hot she'd been up there and finished, what, fourth or first race. And I got a call from the Speedway when I was in the office out the Herald Times and said, would you like to take a ride around the road course with Danica Patrick tomorrow? Okay. So I went up there and a little tiny girl, you know, five one or something, you know, and we got there and she took off pretty good speeds and didn't know what questions to ask her. I was just having fun, you know. <laughs> I told my wife when I got home, I said, it really reminded me of giving my daughter driving lessons. <laughs> I looked over at this little driver. <laughs> She's going a little faster, though. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. You worked for a really long time as a sports writer. When did you start? What era did you start as a professional, you know, doing it for a living, basically, or getting paid I probably for it. started it in 1967. I worked at the Shelbyville News and Columbus Papers. I did some sports in Columbus, but it was mostly small town stuff, and 
But in 67, I moved over to Finley, Ohio to become sports editor. And uh, Harry Gonzo, who was the IU quarterback on that team that went to the Rose Bowl, was from Finley. So that gave me a little angle. I came back to a couple of IU games, and then they asked me, do you want to go to Pasadena? And I said, I can find my way. And so I went out to cover that. Indiana's only Rose Bowl trip. Yeah, that because was Because we long had time. a local interest. Yeah, <laughs> that was fun, too. That was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah it yeah. sure was. So you must have seen quite a few changes just in the media industry. You started in the late 60s and worked until very yeah. recently. How is it different now than the way it was when you started in 1967? Well, we were actually, in my early days, we still had the old Underwood typewriter, you know, and you typed out as you had a carbon and then they had to punch it in and it was a lengthy process. The computer era, for me, began in 1978. I was at the Louisville That early? Wow. I, I'm surprised, 1978. Yeah, well, all we did was... We had, I'll tell you, they called us into a meeting one day and they showed us what we were going to be using on road trips. And it was a big, large suitcase sized computer, heavy as the Dickens. You undid it and there was a screen about four inches square. That was what you saw. That was your story on that. You typed it in. But the thing was, there was no safety at all. You lost your story if somebody kicked the plug, if. Static electricity ran it into the computer. You'd lose the whole story? It'd lose your whole story. There was no save? There was no save. And, uh, or at least it didn't have a save of where for work. I don't, I don't know anybody ever got a save to work. <laughs> and so frequently we'd have to write a story twice. So that happened to you? Yeah. That you... Or maybe you'd send it on your telephone line from a public phone or something, and it wouldn't go. You'd try it four or five times, it wouldn't go. Deadline's over, so you've got to dictate something off your head or something like that. There were a lot of people threatening to throw those computers into the Ohio River. I promise you that. <laughs> and uh, we used those two or three years. The computers got a little bit better, but I can only envy the guys who signed and on Wi-Fi and things like that today because that's totally dependable. The Internet has made so much difference in researching a story because now you can find about anything you want in there, you know. And in those days they had to pin up press releases and give them to them by paper, and they weren't very good or very often really. Journalism is much easier now than it used to be. I see writers over in the press box now. I still go to the IU games. They're in there watching other ball games on, on their computers. I used to be writing their total notes of every play. And uh, I think, boy, it'd be easy to do it now. Yeah, it is. It certainly feels, for me as a spectator and somebody who consumes a fair amount of sports journalism, mm-hmm. it feels like a, a very different era. But I can only imagine what it was like working as a sports writer back then in addition to uh, having to use gigantic computers with four-inch screens yeah, that yeah. didn't have a save feature yeah. or that wouldn't work. What other challenges did you run into that you might not run into as much these days? Well, to go a little further on that one, we had, I had covered golf. It was like the state open. There might be 125 players or something like that. I had to arrange their names in order and put, type them in. And if it didn't go then, you, you're scared to death. They were going to all vanish and you're going to have to do it all over, which is about an hour and a half job probably. You covered the race for many years, the Indy 500. Yeah. How has the atmosphere of the race changed over the years, uh, both as a for a sports writer and for the spectators? The biggest thing is they got rid of an old press room. They had a very small concrete block building with some desks lined up, you know, and it wasn't nearly big enough. It's filthy. They've got a press room now that's just enormous. You could almost have a football game in there, television sets and stuff everywhere, and and the big window that you can go over and watch. I, I, I don't like watching from that window because you don't hear the noise. I mean, half of Indianapolis is the noise. Yeah. The old press room, they had an old rug on the floor that I bet it had been there for 50 years. It was just sprayed and everything, you know. And 
we had one of the public relations people who trying to make friends and everything. He was being a big carton of beer, or actually a cooler of beer, which is about three feet long tub, you know, and it had rope on it and full of beer and ice. And he dragged across that floor and gave everybody a free beer. I wanted one. And uh, the speedway people told him to quit that because he was ruining the rug. <laughs> <laughs> well, they got rid of the snake pit too, right? They, 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 they've they, done a wonderful job. And I give Tony George a lot of credit, the former president up there. Because when I was, uh, I was, and I should explain to anybody who doesn't know what the, yeah. the snake pit was this area, it was in the infield, right? Mm-hmm. And it was just a place that was almost like what the police would call a combat zone in a city uh, where it was just sort of this lawless, uh, you know, every, crazy every area. Really raw. And that was a place in those days, even in the 50s, I don't think, or later than that maybe even, you didn't really want to take your date up there. You didn't know what you'd see. It was just a filthy old place. And who knows how many babies were conceived in the snake pit. I have no idea, but I wonder sometimes. And But Tony George came in there and cleaned it up and changed it all, improved the food, made it a very respectable place to take anybody. I give him a lot of credit for that. Now, if you... These days, can you see the Indy 500 if you're living in Indianapolis? Because when I was no. growing up, you couldn't. It was blacked, it's still blacked out. out. It's still blacked yep. out. Okay. I yeah. hate that. Because <laughs> we always listen to it on the radio. Yeah. So I have, I have such a vivid memory of my dad in the backyard with his radio, you know, yeah. and hearing the engine noises yeah. and the, uh, the announcers calling out, saying what was going on and everything. And it was always just thrilling, actually, to hear on the radio, but kind of frustrating. You could, I think you get to see it on tape delay, maybe, ABC. Yeah, yeah but it's the night of the race, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. That's not the same. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I grew up as somebody who always heard it on the radio, and it was, you know, the greatest spectacle in yeah. racing there. Was kind of, but you couldn't see it if you were in Indianapolis unless you actually were out at the I track. really think at one time they were afraid to have it on TV because an accident could be really horrifying to see. But uh, I think they got over that. I had meant to ask you, too, while we were talking about your experiences as a sports writer over the years. Were you paid on salary or were you paid by hours work? Did you? If, if you were an opinion writer and a columnist, then they paid you a salary. But if, if I was a viewer reporter... They paid you by the hour. They had to do that. But boy, they they finagled a lot of ways to not count hours. And uh, like if you were taking a plane trip to L.A. or something and you were leaving at 7 in the morning, they weren't going to pay you until you got there. They didn't think you need to have a breakfast on the way because uh, you could do that at home at 5 a.m. before you leave. You know, it, it was kind of a frustrating thing. As a result... Some expense accounts got padded, I'll guarantee you that. I was going to ask if you had expense accounts. Yeah, we we were pretty liberal with that. I mean, you you have to say, we stayed in good hotels and we ate at good restaurants. So it even out a little bit, but we got a new sports editor one year, and uh, he's there about two months or so, and he sent everybody a memo regarding, he says, I've heard of padding expense accounts, but you guys have killed the fatted calf and are dancing on the body. Well, yeah, it's interesting to me just the whole uh, – have you ever thought about writing a memoir of your own experiences as a sports That's ironic because I've got one. And I kind of did it to show my grandkids what I was doing all those years. And I didn't really think too much about publishing. And then I, I had some dealings with the New York Publishing House as we do in the Laskowski book. And I said, would you be interested in see a look at this? And they did. And they looked at it. And they, they went a few weeks and they got word back that we're, we're really interested. Uh, we'll let you know soon. And finally, they said, I think we're going to have to pass on it. So I, I may try to sell it yet. But there were a lot of little stories that were pretty cute. So this is a, a book that you have completed but has not been it, published. It started, it's, yeah, it's not been it's, published. It it's a out, memoir. It started out actually as a Bob Knight 
here's how it was like to work with Bob Knight. It's a book. And I, <laughs> Which after, would be interesting after, to I, a lot of people. I sure. ran out of space after a long time, and I started putting in other things that were kind of cute, I thought. And I think it's pretty readable, but we'll see if anybody ever reads it. Was your last position being the sports editor at the yes. Herald Times? That I, was your... I retired in uh, 2006. 2006. So these books that you've published in recent years, The Butler Basketball Legends, The Curse of the Indy 500, these were books that you wrote? After, in the last two years, yeah. Right, right. Is is there anything, in addition to the memoir, which you said you're going to still maybe try to publish, is there anything else that you'd like to write or publish about that you haven't done yet? I wrote a novel, and I think it's pretty well written, but I I had a couple of New York booking agents look at it, and they said, well, they said it's a sports novel, and says sports novels just don't sell. They like the concept, but so I just kind of let it die. It's not so much about sports, the game, as it is about people in sports, you know. So it was kind of fun to do, and I did it in spare time over three or four years, and I don't know whether I'll ever find anybody to look at it or not. You know, but, people uh, love sports movies, though. Maybe it could be. That's true. I, uh, turned into a book, the book publishing business is pretty hard to get into if you're haven't had some stuff, luck, or if you're not a big name. And uh, I quit trying, I guess. I'm just thinking of two, well, of course, these were movies based on actual people, not on novels, but the Hoosiers movie has certainly, uh, uh, although it was a fictionalized treatment of the the Uh Milan team, and then Rudy uh, is another film with an Indiana connection, sports connection, so it's interesting that... I thought Hoosiers did a terrific job on that. Uh, It just... they had to change things. They ruled out the semi state. They only had one game for the state finals. Things were different. But they got the aroma of the small town. That was the way it was, really. The little gym that they used for Hoosiers as their home court. I got to play in as a kid, so <laughs> kind of special for me. Did you ever get to <laughs> take a shot or play on the Hinkle Fieldhouse? I did in a recruiting deal when I went up to the fraternity house at Butler before my freshman year. And Wally Cox, who was a starter for Butler at that time, took us over to Shoot baskets at ankle. That's the only thing. But that was kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Well, you've covered sports for so long, and you, you said you knew from the sixth grade on you wanted to be a sports writer. And you were in the sports journalism industry for decades, and sports these days seems more popular than ever. Certainly some sports have gained in popularity, like soccer. Uh, some sports maybe are kind of not growing the way they used to, or people talk about is baseball really America's pastime anymore. But it's clear that there's still a ton of passion out there for sports at all levels. What is it about sports that drives so many eyes and ears to... You get to study people, for one thing. They come in all sizes, and we learn to like them or dislike them. They have tremendous skill levels at some sports, at least. Uh, Even soccer, I've covered... I used a soccer team for several years. I really, really enjoyed it. It's a really good sort if you enjoy it and if you have a team you really want to cheer for. Golf, I think, is a really difficult sport to play. Some people handle it, but uh, I think it's very difficult. Uh, the thing that kind of bothers me anymore, I, I grew up as a tremendous baseball fan. I used to hit balls across the yard and go chase them, you know. And you don't see anybody anywhere playing baseball anymore except in the games, uh, the advanced levels. And It kind of bothers me that you can't get enough kids up to play a baseball game anymore. Nobody does. They play soccer, though. Although it seems like the sports gained in popularity maybe in like South America and Central America, a lot of players these days seem to come from that part of the world. But it does seem like in the continental United States, I, I agree, it doesn't seem like you see it quite as much as, as you did. Probably not. Soccer is really gaining in popularity, though. And 
it's a good sport. It seems like a boring sport to some people, but as I said, it takes some real skill and endurance, and uh, everybody's playing it. My grandson, I've seen many, many games he's played, and it's something I really enjoy. Well, it's interesting, too, with the different sports. You were talking about how, you know, you the character of people that comes out and everything. Different sports, you're seeing different kinds of situations like golf is a very individual sport. I mean, mm-hmm. you've got a caddy and everything, but it's still basically one exactly. athlete out there trying to make a shot, whereas in basketball, you've got five mm-hmm. players constantly moving, mm-hmm. constantly trying to maintain a flow. And then then you've got sports like baseball where there's nine players, but there's also individual yeah. confrontations, competitions, whatever you want to call them, going on. Does that kind of affect what you see coming out in people? I think you can become a student of whatever sport you're following and really enjoy it for that reason. You know, baseball, you go to hit and run, you go to steal, you're going to do this and that, and you second-guess what's going on. Basketball is very easy to second-guess officials, for one thing, but but the people learn different offenses and football defenses. Are, they're constantly talking on TV what, what defense some team is in. And there's a lot there to follow if you want to follow. And if you want to be simple and just follow how many baskets does this team get against that one, you can do that too. Probably soccer is that kind of sport for me because I don't understand at all what's going on. But covering Indiana with Jerry Yeager, his coach, he was a marvelous coach at telling you what's going on when he knew you didn't really know. And then you could look like you do. (laughs) (laughs) He was a delight. He and the late Bill Mallory were just fantastic to cover. Well, Stan Sutton, thank you so much for all that you've done to give us a window into the world of sports and athletes over the many decades. And I hopefully look forward to reading your memoir if it comes out. And uh, Hope you enjoy these books. Uh, thank you. Well, thank you so much, Stan Sutton, for joining us on Profiles. I'm David Brent Johnson. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash, The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.